All right, so why don't we begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Okay, a couple things to start off with. One, I have to hit the recorder. Secondly, um, like all of you, I'm very curious why Larry has two cups of coffee in front of him. Um, okay, well, there you go. He's... There's a logic. Um, thank you for everybody who um, made the coffee and made treats. I made apple cake back there. Um, now, just uh, a warning. So, um, we're going to do a class on Julian of Norwich, and then the next class is 20th century um, spiritualities, but here's the problem. I really debated this. The last class we had on Meister Eckhart, I wasn't really thrilled with uh, because I didn't have enough time to prep. Because I landed, and then when I landed um, back from vacation, there was these emergencies, so then I had to put something together. And I know this sounds strange. It's not like these are that hard of classes, but it does take me at least two hours to get notes together for the class. Um, and the problem is, we were going to, after this class, do um, the book of Genesis, which I love. And admittedly, I could probably talk without notes, but it wouldn't be a great class, and I, I don't like that. Um, so we're not going to do exploring Catholicism during Advent, because I just don't have the time to prepare. So... Um, We'll do it on 2023. Does that make sense? Um, so we'll have a small break. And then just once again, my point of the overview of these classes is that you can, through history, we have a lot of different Catholic spiritualities. Um, and they're all quite valid. But so somebody said this recently to me um, about those entering the Catholic Church where they said, no, this is, hear, the, hear the controversy. They said, well, you need to be teaching these people to make sure if they're going to become Catholic, they have to know how to pray the rosary. So I said, well, if they're going to become Catholic, I do want to teach them how to pray the rosary. But the official prayer of the Catholic Church is not the rosary. It's the divine office, the Psalms. Um, think about this. The rosary doesn't, uh, come into existence until St. Dominic. That's a 13th century, or yeah, that, that, that's a 13th century. So are you saying all those, you know, 13, you know, 100, 100, 100 years, those people weren't Catholic? Like St. Francis had devotion to Mary, but he didn't pray the rosary. Does, does that make any sense? Um, so my only point being is that not to win that tiny point, how we do Catholicism in this time and place is not how all Catholics have done it. The things that we have done is the Psalms and the sacraments and Scripture. But there's been many prayer forms. Does that make any sense? So I, I'm hoping it will reduce kind of this hubris that the way I pray is the way all Catholics should pray. Does, like I do pray the rosary every day. But I would never say that Linda is less Catholic because she doesn't. Does that make sense? Um, so there's different forms of spirituality. So um, now we're going to go to the 14th century English mystic. Now, this sounds kind of strange. If, I, if you said, well, what is your favorite, who are your favorite mystics? I hate to say this, the mystics from the 14th century are my favorite. And... There's one in particular, Julian of Norwich, um, who I really do love. So I'm hoping you'll incorporate a little bit of your spirituality, uh, of her spirituality in you. And so 
I came across it first because we had this bishop in Idaho named Bishop Trinan. Did anybody know Bishop Trinan? Honest to God, holy, holy bishop. Um, it's kind of bad to grow up with a bishop like that because then you think all bishops are holy. <laughs> but <clears throat> I really, he was just a great bishop. And his favorite book of all to read, his favorite spiritual reading, was Julian of Norwich. She wrote this book called uh, Revelations of Divine Love. Now, oddly enough, her book, Revelation to the Line Love, is also like the favorite book of Bishop Tutu and major um, figures throughout history. But like Bishop Trinan believed her theology of love, um, believed that it kept him calm in troubled times. Because one of the phrases you'll hear uh, in this lecture is Christ saying to her, all will be well, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. And so in the late medieval world where Christianity dominantly, powerfully dom dominated the culture, it wasn't necessarily a golden age of Christianity. It was actually a time of a lot of superstition and faith. But surprisingly, it's also the time of the Black Plague. Um, so imagine the Black Plague taking over. Now everybody remembers their junior high Black P Plague lecture, right? Is that a yes or a no? Because a lot of people look down. Um, what's that? <laughs> oh, you guys knew it. Um, but think, like, they're not quite sure. Different parts of Europe had different death rates. But it was about half of Europe died. Could you imagine? In some places, two-thirds of the population died. So, like, <clears throat> I always think this is a great story. The monastery I went to seminary at, their mother house was in Switzerland. Um, and there's a story that one of the monks uh, left the monastery. The monastery would have had a couple hundred monks in it. Um, leaves the monastery, and when he comes back, everybody had died of the bubonic plague. Isn't that just amazing? Like, so everybody's dead, so what do you do? So he elected himself abbot. Um, <laughs> and he buried everybody. Now, here's the odd part. The monastery does survive. More people eventually became back, and it becomes a thriving monastery. But just imagine, think of what it would be, do psychologically or theologically uh, with you know, half the population, two-thirds of the population died. You know, just with COVID, that really wasn't that bad. People kind of freaked out and had all these conspiracies. And you know what I mean? Um, anger and all this other stuff. Higher suicide rate. Well, that was nothing compared to the Black Plague. And so, like, you can still pick out art from the 13th century, 14th century, 13th, 14th century. If, have you ever seen like a picture of the crucifix where Jesus is dying and um, it's torturous, but then at the base of the, the um, um, cross is a skull? Have you ever seen that in any crucifixes? I really can't read you people anymore. Um, you, They'll be very popular. Look for them. That art form happened in the 13th century. The idea is that where the place where Christ died is also where Adam and Eve committed their sin. But that skull, um, that's supposed to make you remind, mind you, remember death. So theology kind of twisted that there's a heavy emphasis on death and sin and judgment. Um, and the question would be, obviously, what is God doing? We're, we're dying here. What is God doing? Uh, and so in this time period, you do have kind of this heaviness, because right? it's tough to be lighthearted in the midst of war and massive pesticide of people dying out. Um, and oddly enough, there was this, uh, due to the Black Plague, 
the spirituality of self-hatred kind of grew, where you have a lot more people being uh, flagellating themselves, you know, whipping themselves. Um, and of course, um, it started first off with just torturing themselves, but you know what it eventually turned to? Blaming other people for the plague, especially Jews. So then the torture just ended up blaming and torturing other people. And there is this increase of the time of preaching, of anger towards sinners. Um, and I'm all for that. You know I love to be, Marge, you get your act together. Um, yet, here's the amazing part. The 14th century mystics didn't receive revelations of God's intense anger with us. The 14th century mystics their mysticism was based on the incredible love of God. That plague and disease, it doesn't matter. God's love is so powerful. And I just mention that because if you go over the course, like in the time of St. Francis, the Pope was concerned about gold and wealth and um, the opposite. God gives saints like Dominic and Francis where you revere poverty and humility. Does that, the saints God sends us in every generation is the antidote to what's wrong with the church and the world. Or Meister Eckhart, you had Thomistic philosophy, and as long as, you know, as long as you're super smart and have all theological answers, then you're religious. And God converts you know, several of the Rhineland mystics, Meister Eckhart, that, well, they'd say, no, God is completely other. Does that make any sense? So I think the same thing with 14th century English mystics. You had on one side people preaching God is really ticked off with humanity. Yet the mystics, um, Duns Scotus and uh, the English mystics, their mysticism of God is really on God's incredible love. So the name of her book is Revelations of Divine Love. And... Um, uh, the mystics did not focus on the popular idea that God is disgusted with humanity. Quite the opposite. Like Julian of Norwich, in one of her visions, um, she sees this, um, I, and I'm not going to tell it right, um, a servant and a master, and the master is on the top of the hill, and the servant is climbing the hill, and falls, climbing the hill, and tumbles down. And all the master has is concern for the servant who's fallen not anger because he fell. Does that make sense? And so, like Julian of Norwich in her mysticism, um, that's kind of like it. Master, when we fall, actually only look, uh, looks at us with love and urging us to get up, not blaming us for our fall. And she says the only wrath is not found in God. The only wrath is found in humanity. And so Julian's Norwich, um, her biography is pretty simple. Um, she was born in 1342. Um, of course, she was known to be a holy woman. But here's the really odd part. We don't know her real name. We don't know her real name because um, she became an anchoress of the Church of Julian in Norwich. So that's all we really know. We know uh, from biography that, um, and this was popular at the time, she would pray for three things. Um, and so as a young girl, she prayed to God for three things. So you'll find that among kind of popular, the mystics of this time period, that, okay, what are the three main things I want from God? Do you remember that song in like the 80s? Oh, dear Lord, these three things I pray to love you more dearly. How does that song go? I always liked that song as a kid. Day by day, three things, to love you more dearly, to what is it? follow thee more clearly and win the lottery. Um, <laughs> like, so she had these three things that um, when she was a girl, she decided these are the three things she wants. Um, and um, so here's a question for you. If you go back to the 14th century, what would be the three things you would want most from God. What she said was, first, to understand God's 
to understand Christ's passion, um, which makes sense given the plague. Two, to suffer physically while still young. And third, to have the three wounds of Christ's gift, of the wound of true compassion, the wound of true contrition, and the wound of a true longing for God. So technically, no offense, she asked for five things, but um, those are three. Well, then later, she does get sick. And she gets so sick that, you know, there's a question whether she died or not. But they called for last rites, and her mother came and closed her eyes because she thought she was dead. Um, now, I mentioned those three things because later she realizes uh, when she was on her deathbed, oh, God is giving me the three things I want. So the first, to understand Christ's passion. Julian's meditation on the suffering of the cross was really much different from those of her time period. Um, after the 13th century, the meditations of the cross always focused on our guilt and our suffering, um, that we deserve it. Uh, Julian's meditation on the cross was at all the... All the cross was, all these meditations on Christ is willing to suffer because he's so greatly in love with us, he'll do anything for us to have a deeper conversion. That's the opposite that was popular in her time period. Or her vision of Christ on the cross, where she said, and I'll explain this later, here is our mother from whom for all eternity we are eternally loved. She looks at, she gets a vision of um, what the crucifixion was, and for her, it was this act of pure love. It was a mix of sorrow and pain and joy, where Satan is defeated. So she's on her deathbed, and she receives these visions, and she actually laughs um, at the end uh, of the crucifixion because she laughs because, oh. Satan is now defeated. So her vision of the cross is of, oh no, this is an outpouring of love, not to invoke more, this is what uh, is wrong with humanity. Secondly, to suffer while young, she gained that. She almost died. Thirdly, the th three wounds as Christ's gift of compassion, contrition, and longing for God. And all of them were granted. Um, in fact, the sec with the second one, to be sick when she was young, she felt like what it was like to die without dying. Um, and so that, in a way, this sounds kind of strange, her death kind of cleansed her from everything religion was popular, religion was teaching at the time. So she does get sick, and... Um, she may have actually died, like she was that sick. But her mother does show up, and her mother, um, her mother's compassion nurses her back to health. But when she's 33 and a half, um, uh, and she gets so close to dying, they close her eyes, they said she was dead, but she wasn't dead. And in those um, days of suffering, um, it took three days, and her mother nursed her back to health. But when she was in the midst of dying, she received these 16 visions from God. Um, and that's why the image of a mother's love um, is kind of key to Julian's Norwich, Julian of Norwich's vision. Revelation divine love is that, wow, it was her mother, mother who nursed her back to health. So... She's not meaning to be like a women's liver or anything like that, but her profound insight into God was that as a mother caring for her child. So she'll call Christ my mother. Um, and on the seventh day of her illness, when she had, she had these 16 visions of divine revelations of love, or she'll call them her showings, and she wrote it down. And after that, they're so profound. She takes a vow and becomes an anchoress. Um, now you're wondering, what's an anchoress? 
An anchorist is somebody who basically is a hermit. But what would have been popular at this time period is um, what an anchorist would do, would attach herself to a church. So the church at Norwich, they would have added on a, a little room. And I think this is kind of funny. Um, uh, there she would have been. Um, but I just, I'm going to explain anchorist. But I want to go back to, think about the thing that sparked her mysticism was two things. Sickness unto death and a mother's love. Um, and that became the spark for the rest of her spiritual life. In 20 years after writing down a briefly what the showings were, uh, she gets some help and somebody else fleshes out all the notes. But she's the first woman to write in English, not Latin, so that all people would know the incredible love of God. So if I said, who's the first woman who ever wrote anything in English? The answer would be Julian of Norwich. Um, but she was this anchoress. And that's, if you remember, that was a tradition from the Desert Fathers where they'd go out and become a hermit. But in the 13th century, what you'd do is just build on um, a room onto the church and um, an anchoress would be a hermit there in the room and pray night and day for the church. Um, and I love the ritual for the enclosing. It's this liturgical ceremony where the bishop comes up and it's exactly like a funeral. So um, let's say, and I'll just randomly pick on somebody, Marge. Um, if Marge wanted to become an anchoress, what we would do is hold a funeral for her, even though she's not dead. We'd hold a funeral for her. It would be a requiem mass of the Holy Spirit. And then the anchoress, Marge, would be uh, dressed in simple garb and then would prostrate um, at the door of the enclosure, uh, and the prostration is she has died. And they'd sprinkle holy water, uh, part of the funeral rite, and ashes upon her, that now she's dead to everything. And then she would be sealed up into this room. And so the room, um, uh, uh, the room would have two windows. And one window, you could open it up and look at the tabernacle. So part of her, like if you said, well, what was her prayer life? It'd really be adoration. Because then she would open up and there's a tabernacle and she could pray. Then she would have another window where she could open to the world. And Julia of Norwich was this profound spiritual director. So um, from the window to the world, if you wanted to come by spiritual direction, you could go to the anchor. And she would support herself with needlework, and she would have a room for a kitchen and bedroom, and that's all she would have. Um, these two windows, they were called squints, um, and basically it was prayer and spiritual direction that she would offer. Um, but think about this. From her window to the outside world, she could have viewed the plague um, time period, Rome is going through all these anti-popes and fights for power. From the other window, um, all she could see is a blessed sacrament. Now, her hold, the, the room that she had, is actually, it was destroyed in World War I, but she was known as the greatest spiritual director in England at the time period. And she lived until her old age. Even though at 31, she had came co close to dying, um, she has, um, uh, anyhow, lived to be an old age. And her visions, the visions of divine revelation, they come in three forms. One bodily, where when she had a bodily one, she could use all her senses. Like when she sees a crucifixion, she can smell and see and um, hear everything. Another type she called a ghostly vision, where um, it just departed uh, a, uh, a will onto her soul. And the third she called an intellectual vision, where she would just know so, uh, something in her mind, a conversation between her and God. It was just in her head. So what was Julian of Norwich's theology? So I'm just going to limit a couple of them. 
One was her concept of God in the world. Now, careful what you pay, pray for, because the image of the divine you worship um, will become who you are. For Christ, sorry, for St. Francis, he worshiped the humble Christ. Um, Innocent III worshiped Christ the King. So Innocent III, the Pope at the time, he worshiped power and money, but think about Pope Francis' spirituality, St. Francis' spirituality was humility. Um, at the time period of Julian of Norwich, judge, sorry, Jesus was pictured as this angry judge of sinners. That was the most popular. She had the opposite. For her, Christ is this loving Savior. He is a dear mother. So she calls Christ. He says, Christ is our dear mother who desires to have us know just how much he loves us. Well, that's a complete opposite view. So her concept of God as mother was really central. Now, this sounds great. She's not being a women's liver. That, she wouldn't have understand those terms. But that's how she experienced God was in the love of her mother nursing her back. So her experience of God is love would have been much different from that which is preaching at the time. So I'm just saying, like, if you want to learn from Julian of Norwich's spirituality, how about this? Um, like, if you want to do the Franciscan one, Christ is humble. That works. But Julian of Norwich's meditation on Christ is Christ is the divine mother who will do anything to care for us. Uh, another thing is her idea of love. Um, um, she said the highest gift of all was would be to live in the love of God. Um, what you know about God is meaningless. Living in the love of God is all that really matters. Everything about God, she said, is love, love, love. So in the first revelation, she said, quote, I was greatly moved in love towards my fellow Christians that all might see and know as I see. Now, I love that, that if God is love, 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 then when she looks at other people, all she can feel is love. And prayer, she says, generates this love for others. So the closer you get to God who is love, it generates in this love for others. And I like that, because if your image of God is the angry judge, I think what's going to happen is that I'll be able to say, you know what's wrong with you, Linda, and you know what's wrong with you. You know what I mean? Um, and interestingly enough, um, they did this study um, on people who pray, a uh, psychological study. People who pray regularly, you actually have more activity in your frontal lobe, so you a you're actually thinking more logically. Did I tick off Larry and Lee? Get out! Get out, Larry! Um, not having any talk of love. Um, but anyhow, do you know if you pray more, you're more calm, you're more compassionate? They've done all these studies. Prayer is incredibly healthy for you physically, but also mentally. You think more intellectually. You're more calm. Except, they found this uh, anomaly. That is true for most. But people who test out that their first their test of God is angry and a judge, the more they pray, the more they think in the back of their brain, their emotional part, so they do become more and more angry. So I'm just saying, psychologically, it's proven true. Julia of Norwich obviously was all about love. Everything was about love. And so prayer does generate a greater love for other people. So, um, I love that. Her, even though she was an anchoress and cut off from the world, her prayer life becomes spilling over into love. And so, this is what Christ said. Uh, and I like this. Who revealed this to you? Love. What was revealed to you? Love. Why does he reveal it to you? Love. Remain in love and you will know more. Doesn't that just kind of sum up so much? 
truth and wisdom are all about love. Love is the way that God reveals the truth to you. So I know you kind of want to think, well, I'll be like Thomas Aquinas, and I'll learn wisdom through a book. Julian's way is, ah, no, wisdom is gained through loving other people. Um, and so um, Thomas Merton, he said that Julian of Norwich was the greatest theologian because what she taught most of all was love. And she would have heard the sermons, because you can open up the window, of all these sermons of God is angry with sinners, and that's why he sent the plague. Um, it's kind of the same preaching today that you get from a lot of TV evangelists. If a hurricane hits Haiti, do you know why one evangelist said hurricane hit Haiti? Because they're in league with Satan. You know, like you get all these TV evangelists who um, feed this theology of fear and anger. In this time period, the 14th century mystics are preaching the others, that their mysticism encounter with God is God is absolute love. So the second thing is the goodness of God. Um, so one of our main themes is the goodness of God, that we are clothed head to toe in the goodness of God. Like, I just love that, that every person is clothed in the goodness of God of God from head to toe. They just don't know it. Um, and so I know this sounds kind of str strange. Um, when I read that years ago when Julia of Norwich, I remember, like, I do this weird thing that um, I get road rage walking through Costco. Um, <laughs> where I really, honest to God, I have this thought, I could not walk that slow if you put a gun to my head. And, <laughs> Let's just block the aisle. Um, so, um, you know, w when you're waiting in line at the grocery store, you might as well be doing something. So try this meditation of Julia Norwich. Imagine seeing the person in front of you in the grocery line or wherever and just wrapped in the cloak of God's love and goodness. Like, I know this sounds kind of strange. I like to pray for people when I have nothing else to do. It, you know, and just if Linda was in front of me, I didn't know her, but it's just kind of a nice way to waste your time of saying a prayer that that person just be wrapped in love and goodness of God. Um, and her revelations of the goodness of God is on this intimacy of God. God is near to all things. Even the smallest thing is surrounded by God's love. Um, so God is near to all things. Um, and she says, when you have eyes of love, the whole world speaks about God's love. And she has this revelation of, um, in one vision where God shows, you know, Christ shows Julian uh, this small object, the size of a, uh, she says, a, a hazelnut that looked like a round ball. It's just in God's hand. And then, uh, so let me read it. I looked at it and thought, what can this be? The answer came to me. It is all things made. I wonder, how could it last? For it's so small, and I thought it might suddenly disappear. And the answer in my mind was, it lasts and will last because God loves it in the same way that everything exists through the love of God. In short, everything owes its existence to the love of God. This little thing, I saw three truths. First, is that God made it. Second, is that God loves it. And third, is that God sustains it. So, you know, like, I love those studies, how vast the universe is. And we're just this teeny tiny thing in this vast universe. But creation itself, the universe, to God is the size of a, a hazelnut. And yet God rejoices in the tiniest part of it. Um, and then she wrote, and I saw God rejoices. He is our father. The God that rejoices is our mother. The God that rejoices, he is our true spouse. And our soul is his beloved wife. Um, 
So I love the idea of the goodness of God surrounds the tiniest amoeba to the biggest things. Does that make sense? Um, I love that meditation. The other thing I personally really love about Julia Norwich is um, if you read her writings, she has dozens of different names for the Trinity. Um, and so, like, just reviewing back, because this is my favorite. My favorite homily of St. Augustine is on the Trinity. I'm just going to review with it really quick. St. Augustine said, you know, when we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, you know the problem with theology is that um, people get trapped in the words. And when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, some people think that God is actually an old man and a young man. And I guess there's birds flying around. Um, but that's a name of not three different people. That's the name of uh, three different types of relationship. So he said, you can use father, son. That's a not a name of a person. That's a name of a relationship. So he said, the same way we use that name, the name of a relationship, we can say in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself. Or we'd say in the name of the giver of the gift, the receiver of the gift, and the gift itself. In prayer is us inserting this flow between lover, beloved, and love itself. And Julian Rhodes would have been theologically uneducated. She wouldn't have known St. Augustine. But from her revelations, if you read it, she has dozens and dozens of these different ways of naming the Trinity. Does that make sense? So, like, I... Okay, let me just stop you there, because I'm not really sure. I'm getting... Except for one person, I'm getting a lot of blank faces. Does that make sense, what I said about the Trinity? Okay, well, uh, Julia Norwood, she has all these images of the Trinity, which I really love. Um, so, um, but her description of the Trinity is based on how we experience the function of each person of the Trinity. She always emphasized the oneness, the unity of the Trinity. So she'd say, in the maker, the helper, and the savior. In the name of life, light, and love. In the name of truth, understanding, and wisdom. In the name of the creator, the protector, and... Oh, sorry. The name of the creator, the lover, and the protector. The name of um, joy delight and bliss in the name of he who pl is pleased, he who is honored, and he who is delighted. Um, so, um, or she'd say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the breath. Um, I'm, one more. In the image of the Father as the may, the Son as the can, and the Spirit as the will. So, if you choose to read Divine Revelations of Love, you have to get used to the fact that if you're not tuned, you kind of get a little lost. She's just using different names. It's the Trinity is relationship itself. Does that make sense? Uh, just something to meditate on. Fourth point I wanted to make about Julia Norwich is, and this sounds obvious, I love the fact that she emphasizes God as mother. Um, so the reason why she does it, she's not trying to be provocative. Her revelation started because her mother nursed her back to health. And so she says, as God broods over, I'm sorry, God who broods over her children is not ignorant of our faults, but loves us despite them. Isn't that a great, like, analogy? Because I don't have any children, but let's once again pick on Marge for no reason. Do your, does Gretchen have faults? Yes. And we'll talk about them at the end. But <laughs> do you love Gretchen 100%? Yes. Uh, so I love that image of God. Uh, she said, uh, 
I like this. Just think about this. Her mother nursed her back to health. God who caresses and never strikes out. God who has deep emotions for us, not rules. Um, and I love it because her writings, I hate sappy sweetness. She avoids sappy sweetness. But um, she says, God is our mother. The church is our mother. Christ's passion is a mother's passion who suffered, suffered for her child. So uh, she's actually kind of the first Catholic to write extensively as God as our mother. And she says, as truly as God is our father, so truly God is our mother. Um, so here's a couple more quotes. So Jesus Christ is set good against, Jesus Christ set good against evil is our real mother. We owe our being to him. And this is the essence of motherhood. And all the delight and loving protection which ever follows, God is as real as our mother is as our father. So Jesus is our true mother by nature. At our first creation, he is our true mother and in grace takes on our created nature. As a mother can give her child milk to suck. Our dear mother Jesus can feed us with his very self. He does so in the Eucharist, which is the precious food of life itself. The mother can lay the child tenderly to her breast, and our tender mother Jesus can familiarly lead us to his breast through his sweet open side. Um, now, I do love that. Now, if you say, oh, that's just too radical. Um, but, and just to explain this, did you know, actually, in the Gospel of Luke, for every image that Jesus gives of God as a father, he also gives a counter of Jesus as a mother, sorry, God as a father, mother. So, it's not impossible. impossible. Does that make sense? And there's not that many, in the Old Testament, image of God as Father is actually really rare. There's only 16 references. Calling God our Father in the Old Testament is incredibly rare. Jesus is the one who really knocked it out of the ballpark as God, this idea of God is our Father, not distant. I just think it's really strange. In the Gospel of Luke, he, for every image of God our Father, he uses God as our mother. Um, or, and I... I will put it up somewhere. I just don't know how. I want to have it painted. But um, at our my former parish, Holy Apostles, we had this door. We had this door that led to the day chapel, except it just looked like a door. And if you weren't, if you're like, I wonder where the day chapel is where I can pray, all you'd see is a door, which I, you know, you'd think it's a closet. So I wanted to spiff it up. So make it obvious that this is an important door. So I got this artist to paint this um, paint. Uh, well, it's a Romanesque arch on it, you know, the one with the point. So it, it's no longer just a door, but the painting made it look like, oh, that's a doorway. Does that make sense? And if you go to Catholic churches, you'll see this image, and it's an image of the Eucharist. And because it's a chapel, I put on the little triangular part, I had her paint the pelican and the babies. Do you guys know that symbol? Okay, so if you go to Idaho Falls, it's in churches all the time, you just don't notice it. So what it is is that mother pelican. Um, I, I didn't have time, I was busy, so I didn't have time for the slideshow. But you'll see this image of a pelican. And a lot of people think when you see a white bird, they think, oh, it's a dove. No, it's a pelican. And it's a pelic mother pelican, and she's plucking her heart out, and there's three babies below. And you can kind of think, well, what the heck is that? Well, it's this Roman myth. that The Romans had this myth that during times of starvation, a mother would be willing to pluck her own heart out and feed it to her children, but she will not let her children die. So, um, anyhow, the ancient Romans, when they're being converted to, you know, Christianity, 
Catholicism, they were taught the Eucharist. They said, that's just like the Eucharist. Christ rather die and pluck out his own heart and feed us with his life than us die without life. Does that make sense? So the pelican, the mother pelican, is actually this ancient symbol as Christ is a mother in the Eucharist. Um, and so I love her reflections on the Eucharist that no other human relationship comes as close to the image of God's love than a mother feeding her child with her own body. Only, and I love Julian's point on this, only Christ and a mother can feed their child their own body. So she'd say the Eucharist is God, our mother, giving himself to us. Um, um, I was going to read you a long quote about that. But anyhow, uh, she has this long quote. But I just thought that blew me out of the water. Isn't that a great insight? Only Christ and a mother can feed us, feed a child with their own body. So the fifth thing I love about Julian of Norwich is her concept of the human person. Um, and, uh, well, this is going to get into the human person and, uh, well, two parts, sin and faults. The first part that I'm going to talk about, faults. Sin will be our second point. Um, and I, I think about this a lot. So June of, of Norwich, she's kind of an educator, right? So in one vision, she says to God, she says, well, you know, with all the suffering in the world, if you knew Adam and Eve eating the apple would cause this much problem, why didn't you just knock the apple out of their hand? Um, well, first of all, it wasn't an apple, but we'll get into that later. Secondly, Christ says, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that human beings sin. And he said, um, but he says, when I create a human being, I create them with a fault. And that fault is no defect in my eyes. That brokenness is how I'm going to save that person. So I just love that idea that, wow, um, each of us have a fault. And that fault is no defect in God's eyes. Through that brokenness, that's how Christ is going to save us. So we often, like, I'm kind of weird. I'm often going to think, well, like, I shouldn't be ashamed of my brokenness. And I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm not perfect. No, 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 I'm not kidding. Don't. But how do I know that the part that's broken in me, as long as I learn to accept it, um, maybe that's how God's going to save me. And I think a lot of people have shame. Because think about it, 14th century, Black Plague, I think there's plenty of guilt and shame going around. Why should we be ashamed of our faults? Whatever it is. Maybe that brokenness is how I'm going to be saved. Does that make any sense? So, well, just think about that. I love her concept about that. Because um, I do think, I, I'm a believer of Julia Norwich. I think everybody has a fault, a brokenness. Nobody's perfect. But that's the good news. That brokenness, if we work on it, that's how we're going to be saved. Her sixth concept of the human person is when it comes to about sin. And this one I really love too, because remember at the time period with the Black Plague, it's blaming that person and that person. So she asked Jesus about sin. Why sin? And Jesus gives this um, answer that actually, like the brokenness, Christ will save us uh, through our sins. And that's, she doesn't like the answer, so she asks again. And Julian presses Jesus again and says, well, what about all those who are condemned by the church? Um, and to me, it's like the question about, what about those people outside the Catholic Church, uh, you know, who choose sin or golf or whatever? Um, how are they going to be saved? And um, Christ basically says, those things are impossible for human beings to solve, but not for me. And so sin is a way, if we deal with it, 
that's how Christ is going to save us. And so for all the sin in the world, he, there, this is the most famous line of Julian Rowich. Christ says, I shall make all things well. I can make all things well. I will make all things well. And you will see for yourself, all will be well, all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well. I have to say, that's my all-time favorite. I think all will be well is, um, this sounds kind of strange. That's a strange thing to think in a doomed situation. But from the view of heaven, when we get in the view of heaven, and I'm not going to describe this, imagine all the tragedies and suffering Somehow, I don't know how, God, wor Christ will work it out for the greater glory of God. Um, the Black Plague looks like the most awful. How do you know it well, from the view of heaven? All things will be well. I can make all things well, and I will make all things well. So all the suffering, cancer, will win. And so um, there's a story where, um, true story, where this priest, um, this plane is having problems and it's jostling and it's everybody's scared in the uh, plane and this one priest is there and he looks over and this woman is just calmly reading. And so everybody's scared, turbulence, and so he says, what are you reading? And she says, Julian of Norwich. And he said, you're not worried? And she says, all things will be well. All things will be well. If we die, all things will be well. <laughs> and I just love, like, ah, could you imagine being in the middle of the uh, Black Plague? And it's not indifferent. It's just this profound belief that all will be well. You know, I, I may have cancer, but in the end, all will be well. I'll be in heaven with all the saints. Does that make any sense? So in a time of panic and uh, stress, or when people think, oh, sin is winning, no, all will be well. Um, now, I do believe, that I really do believe in a morality of black and white. All I'm saying, is, and as I do believe, some people choose evil. But no matter how many Hitlers or Nazis there are, in the end, all things will be well. They will not win. Does that make sense? Um, so I love that. The other one, the seventh point I want to make about her is, um, I love this, where she calls God the ground of our beseeching. So I just love that. God is the ground of our beseeching. And on prayer, she mentions that she had this long period of barren and dryness. Then Christ said to her, quote-unquote, I am the ground of beseeching. I gave you this thirst. I put that prayer in your heart and will be fulfilled in the longing. Um, so um, Julia Norwich said, you should pray with your whole heart even though there may be no favor for you. Pray with your whole heart even though you may feel nothing. You may see nothing in your dryness and barrenness and sickness and weakness. And then Christ can do the most. Um, so I have to admit, I love that. The ground of our beseeching is this. And several mystics had similar things to it. But, um, you know, you pray and pray and pray, and none of your uh, prayers seem to be answered. And God's answer back was, oh, no, that longing in you, that is my answer back. God is the ground of our beseeching. Uh, so I just, I love that. Um, an example would be Mother Teresa. That priest published Mother Teresa's um, autobiography against her will. You guys know that, right? So you didn't know that? So Mother Teresa had this private diary, and she never, she wanted to destroy it at her death, and uh, one priest published it. And she wanted to destroy it for this reason, is that, you know, early on in her, you know, she was a nun, and then Christ spoke to her, and then she ha did have some mystical revelations. But after she started, um, well, not after, immediately after, but eventually 
she went decades with just this dryness and darkness. And so I think she called herself um, uh, something like an apostle of darkness. She prayed and prayed and prayed, but she received no more visions or direction. Does that make sense? And in her diary, um, that caused her to trust more. She's getting no answer back, but all she has is this greater yearning for God, but she's not getting any more visions or revelation. That yearning in the darkness, that is God's answer back. And the reason why she wanted the diary destroyed is that she would think that like non-Catholics or atheists would say, oh, see, you never got any answer back from your prayers, so therefore God doesn't exist. Does that make sense? They wouldn't understand, no, the yearning in the darkness is the answer. Does that make sense? Um, so I love that. Uh, she is the ground, of, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, God is the ground of our beseeching. So those are like seven different things. You can pick out, pray which one you want. Um, but as a conclusion, this is my opinion. One, let's have enough with the theology of fear. Like, if you really want to adopt Julian's uh, Norwich's spirituality, like, her main one was adoration. have to admit that. Uh, it was adoration. But enough with the theology of fear. Um, can't we be doing theology through love rather than positions of power? Um, her spirituality is a rejection of God as our judge. And when I say um, theology of fear, I'll give you an example. So, talking to this priest um, who uh, was not a bad guy, but um, I forget the uh, preceding, but he, I said, I, you know, I don't really put too much emphasis into the devil. I don't. I do believe in the devil. I have no problem with people with exorcism. It's just not my spirituality. Um, Anyhow, I'm not, would never be an exorcist. And he says, oh, no. He says, no. This mason once casted a curse on somebody. And he said, it took us hours to come up with a perfect prayer to cancel the curse. So I said, that sounds like witchcraft to me. You know, you get, ha, 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 ha. You have to get the exact words, and then therefore God will act to take the curse away. Doesn't that sound like witchcraft to you? Um, but like his theology seems to have a lot of fear and anger. Um, uh, so it just sounds more like the devil is more powerful than God from his theology. And remember, at the crucifixion, she gives this really vivid description of the crucifixion, the blood, the warmth. Um, uh, and in the end, after seeing the crucifixion, even though she's dying, she laughs at the devil. She laughs at the devil because the power of Christ's love and self-sacrifice is far more powerful than the devil's power of hate. Um, so, personally, I like her because enough of the theology of based out of fear and anger. Secondly, tranquility. Um, all shall be well. All things will be well. So, I'm a huge worrier. I'm an insomniac almost because I worry. You know what I really need? More of Julian of Norwich's tranquility. Third, and this is a big one, have you ever thought, like Julian of Norwich, your doorway into mysticism may be sickness. And I think about that because we had COVID. Yes, and I, uh, I'm sorry, Millions of people in the United States died. How much? It was one point something million died in the United States. Millions died throughout the world. We had COVID, but have you ever thought we wasted COVID as a time of fear? But the Black Plague for her was a time of awakening of spirituality. And don't you remember the stories of COVID when everybody was in lockdown? I agree it was, I personally think it was too much, but well, suddenly you could see the canals in Venice and dolphins were swimming in the canals. and uh, You know what I mean? Uh, all the, these 
I think we wasted COVID as a time for a spiritual awakening, and we doubled down on fear and conspiracies. But, you know, that's maybe if I get cancer, I should pray that, ah, like Julia of Norwich, I hope my sickness becomes a door into mysticism. Fourth, I do like her mother theology. Uh, as I said, not feminism, but like her state in life as a daughter receiving love on her deathbed from her mother was also a door to the sacred. Then why can't your position as a father or grandmother be a door? And all the 14th century mystics, oddly enough, well, I shouldn't say that. Take that back. Most of the mystics of the 14th century, because John Curtis Dunn was another one of famous mine, he's actually Irish, Scottish. But once again, his mysticism was, um, he was a great intellectual, but his mysticism was God is love, love, love. In a time that's preaching anger and fear, he's another one. But most of, most of the mystics of the 14th century were women. And uh, I know this sounds kind of strange. I love the idea of, wow, um, your first image of God is your mother. So on Mother's Day at uh, my former parish, we had this sign that we put up on Mother's Day. had a mother holding a baby. And so for Mother's Day, we put it outside the church, and the sign read, Remember who gave you your first kiss. Um, but I just love that, that um, mother could be an image of God. Um, uh, fourth, her passion. Remember, she prayed for three things. She sees the crucifixion and the copious blood. Um, really, into, I don't know what she means. By this. The blood looked like herring scales. Um, uh, but... I love this. At the end of the crucifixion, she writes, the fiend was overcome. Um, so uh, I, I love her vision of the passion, not as something, because this would have been popular at the time, Christ died because you people are sinners. I like the idea of Christ died because, like a mother, he will do anything to give us life. Um, I love her view of sin, um, she at one point says uh, that um, she never saw sin as a thing, and so she thinks sin is really more of an absence. It has no presence. Um, Christ said he can turn all the acts of sin into grace, but Christ never blames people for their sin. He just turns it into a source of mercy. I just think that's uh, uh, another thing that I really love about Joseph Norwich's spirituality. So if you want to improve your prayer life, try one of these. Um, and I really do, I hate to say this, up here in Coeur d'Alene, um, we do, when it comes to sin, have a problem with scrupulosity. So I don't know if you heard the announcement this weekend, you know, come Advent, we'll be changing Confessions. You guys know that, right? Anybody not know that? Okay, so what we're going to do is, and I know this is kind of hard, but so uh, the pastor of um, St. Thomas and St. George, we got together and we had this problem that we don't have enough time to uh, listen to people's confessions. So you think, well, the obvious answer is to offer more confessions. Tried that. And you know what happens? the same people show up for confession. And I, I'm not kidding. You get these confessions where several times, bless me, Father, for my I have sinned. My last confession was yesterday. So what, they jump from St. Pius to St. Thomas to St. George. And the problem is everything's a sin. Uh, and the problem is... Um, I don't have time to listen to my own people's confession because these other people that are not from our parish are clogging the line. So for the first half hour of confession, it's going to be only local parishioners, whether it's St. Thomas or St. George. No, I'm going to get through my... And then those people who want to go every single day, they can, that aren't from our parish, they can go. But their concept of sin is everything's a sin. Everything's a sin. 
I like Julian of Norwich, where there is sin, but it has this power that Christ will turn our sins in a way that brings us closer to God. If you're suffering scrupulosity, you're not really rejoicing in God saving you from your sin. You're becoming obsessed that everything I do is a sin. Does that make any sense? So I think a little bit of Julia Norwich's spirituality might be a good thing for us. So we just, time to end. So any questions, objections? Oh, I, I, I know, trust me. No, even, even all three priests figured out, because after a while you start thinking, are these my parishioners? And then you realize they're not showing up to Mass. Jesus says the, the Eucharist um, does forgive sins. It forgives all venial sins. So you really, I mean, I, like most Catholics want to confess during Advent and Lent. So I want to offer Advent and Lent to my parishioners, not the scrupulous. And if you have minor sin, yeah, the Eucharist does forgive those. We're not doing that. Yeah, we decided not to do that because you know why? The same people show up to clog the line. <laughs> All right, well, next week we're going to do 20th century uh, spirituality. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.